Genesis 42, 18 to 38. 18 to 38. We see the, full, the unfolding of this test of Joseph toward his brothers. 18. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. And he turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We are twelve brothers, the sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Now it came about, as they were emptying their sacks, that, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. And their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Amen. Verse 18, On the third day, they are, they are in prison for three days. On the third day, he calls them out, and he says, do this and live, for I fear God. Meaning, you keep your word, I'll keep my word. 
if this is what you are, you're honest men, then this is how you can preserve your life and the life of your brothers, the life of your family. For I fear God. He self-identifies himself as a God-fearer. We do know that he was a God-fearer with the intense temptation of Genesis 39, verse 9, because he said in Genesis 39, 9, to the wife of Potiphar, there is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? He didn't sin against God because he feared God. Those who fear God do not sin against God. And even momentarily when we fall into temptation, we don't have the fear of God. The fear of God will avert the temptation or succumbing to the temptation if we fear God. Joseph fears God. Actually, even Christians today should fear God. Amen. The reason for the situation or the, the disaster we see in the churches has to do with the lack of the fear of God. If we feared God, we would turn away from sin. Christ our Lord taught us to fear God. Do not fear those who kill the body, but afterwards are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him, God, the Father, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus taught us to fear God. Even in Hebrews 10, 10, 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We ought to have the terror of God in us to prevent us from sinning. Joseph had that in him, and all the godly of all generations should have this fear of God. He fears God, so his proposal, he's going to keep his word. Those who don't fear God don't keep their word. Their yes doesn't mean yes, their no doesn't mean no. Because when they say yes and they don't mean yes, or when they say no and they don't mean no, whether they're saying it to themselves in relation to some sin or some action or in relation to somebody else, if their yes doesn't mean yes and their no doesn't mean no, they end up being liars. They are dishonest. They're dishonest and intoxicated by their own deceit that causes them to sin and break their word. Break their word, their promise, their vow, their oath, whatever it is, They don't keep their word. Here he's going to test them by their words and actions to see if they are honest. And he's promising, because he fears God, to preserve them if they would simply carry out this proposal, which is verse 19. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households. And... Bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. And they did so is just a summary that they agreed with the proposal because what they did is narrated in the following verses. This is what they agreed to do. But when they did agree, notice in 21 what they say to each other. Then they said to one another, Truly, We are guilty concerning our brother. Which brother? Joseph. Joseph. We are guilty concerning our brother, Joseph, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. Yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come 
upon us. They acknowledge their guilt of their brother. They also say they saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. When they were carrying out their crime and sin against Joseph, Joseph was pleading with them. He was begging them not to do it. He wasn't saying, okay, with his hands folded, okay, do whatever you want. No, he was objecting. He was pleading with them not to do it. He had a genuine concern for his own soul. But they didn't. They didn't care. They wouldn't listen, they acknowledged. They were so stubborn, so stony-hearted, they wouldn't listen to him. And now they understand the justice of God. Yeah. It's the justice of God, they say, that now... Uh, therefore, this distress has come upon us in 21. We know they are considering it the justice of God or the providence of God because of verse 28. What is this that God has done to us? Yeah. What is this that God has done to us? They don't look at this as merely a machine, that the universe works like a machine created and then set in motion automatically to function. No, God is involved with every detail in the universe He created. The God of the Bible is not a deistic God who creates the universe like a watch and then sets the winding watch in motion and then leaves the watch alone for a while or permanently. He doesn't do that. He's involved with every action, every good action and every evil action for His glory for the redemption of his elect and for the condemnation of the reprobate. Right. He uses everything for those ends. His glory, our redemption, and the punishment of the wicked, the unrepentant sinners. He does everything for those three reasons. His glory, number one, our redemption, number two, and the punishment of the reprobate, number three. Right. Everything works that way. Even the minute things of the, of the world. Yes, even the minute things. Whether the birds eat or not, whether the grass grows or not, whether the flowers grow or not, right. whether kings, powerful kings and emperors are throned or dethroned or not. <laughs> Daniel chapter, Daniel's chapters 4 and 5, Daniel keeps saying that he, that he, the Lord, is the ruler over the realm of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. Like 4.17. He gives it to whomever he wishes. But also, in reference to the birds and the grass, it's in Matthew 6. Christ said, Matthew 6.25-34, to 34, this very thing. So, the small, minute things of the world that we think are insignificant, God is providentially controlling it all. Right. Whether human action or natural action, uh, law or the things in the world, in nature, all under the control of God. They know that, they believe that. And they know God is a God of justice. In reference to God being a God of justice, it says in 44.16, 44.16, So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? 
And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. He says, how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. In the book of Numbers, Numbers 32, 23, God warned the people, be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. That's what Judah said in Genesis 44, 16. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. That which was concealed becomes unconcealed. That which was hidden becomes revealed because of God. Because He shows us tokens of doing that in the world, but He will certainly do that on the Day of Judgment because He knows the secrets of men. And every secret will be revealed on the Day of Judgment. Not only that, but it's just recompense or the law of retaliation. The philosophers and scholars, the theologians call it lex talionis, the Latin phrase, a just recompense. God is a God of justice. So whatever was meted out will be done to the one who committed the sin, unless the sin is atoned by the death of Christ. It will be paid by the sinner. The unrepentant sinner will pay for his own sins forever, depending on what he has done. The day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Obadiah 15. Your dealings will return on your own head. Whatever you've done to others, it's going to be done to you. God will repay you for what you have done. And it's New Testament doctrine too. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Whatever he sows, he will reap. Don't be deceived. Don't mock God. As though it won't be revealed and he won't hold you accountable. He will. He will. They understand it. We should understand it. Verse 22, Reuben, Reuben is the firstborn son. And Reuben answered them saying, did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. He warned them, the firstborn, the one who usually is the leader in the family, they wouldn't even listen to him. Even though he was a part of the conspiracy to get rid of Joseph, He at least had some humanity in him not to do it in the way that they wanted to do it. He wanted to deliver him after putting him in a temporary trial in the pit. He wanted to take him out of the pit and restore him to his father. Give him some temporary pain, not permanent pain, by selling him into slavery or even murdering him. Reuben didn't want to do that. But they resisted. The nine resisted the one firstborn. That shows how perverse and staunch they were in their hatred of Joseph. 
23. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. And he turned from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Remember, this is an additional barrier. This interpreter, Joseph, did not speak in Hebrew to his own brothers. He let the interpreter go between Hebrew and Egyptian to communicate. Well, when he hears Reuben and the brothers speaking like this among them, he has to hide his compassion for them and compassion for his brother Benjamin and father. He has to hide it, so he walks away and he has to weep until it's all out of him, and then he returns composed back to the room to address the brothers. When he returned, he decides to take Simeon. To take Simeon. It was um, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, in that order, the first four of the sons of Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. Well, the text doesn't tell us why he chose Simeon, but perhaps we have an idea, and there has been speculation among the commentators and even ancient commentators, that Simeon was probably the most stubborn, the most staunch, the most hard-hearted of them all. And he, probably with Levi, we do know that he and Levi, Simeon and Levi, were the ones who retaliated excessively in Genesis 34 and massacred all the men of the city in Genesis 34. They had excessive anger and massacred all the men of the city in Genesis 34. Simeon, being older than Levi, probably had the idea, and Levi agreed with it, and the two of them massacred the men. Uh, Simeon is also not Reuben, in that Reuben shows some humanity, and that humanity is still evident in him in verse 22. He showed it in Genesis 37 because he wanted to restore Joseph to his father, and it's also evident here in verse 22. So, Perhaps to break the hard-heartedness of Simeon, Joseph chose Simeon to stay as a prisoner until his brothers returned. Perhaps for that reason. Whatever the reason is, he chose only one and didn't keep all ten there and then go back and send a message by some other messenger. He didn't do that. 25. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey, and thus it was done for them. All of the men have money returned in their sack, the money they would have used for the grain, and all of them have provisions for the journey. Joseph provides it for all of them. 26. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there, And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? One brother happens to see his money in his sack. 
The others don't discover it until later. We see that in verse 35. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And they were dismayed. Why would this cause them to be dismayed and tremble? That their money used for the purchase of the grain was not actually given to Joseph, but they kept it. What could they be accused of doing? Stealing. Stealing. Being swindlers. Swindlers. Thieves. They could be accused of that. And they didn't want to be accused of that. Because if they were accused of that, then they would be dishonest men. And they would be in trouble with Simeon and in trouble with Jacob for another brother. So they are trembling and dismayed at this. And also, like we said in verse 28, what is this that God has done to us? It's their circumstances. It's their... It's the the people of Egypt. It's Joseph. It's Joseph's uh, officials or servants doing this for Joseph. It's all human actions, but above it all is God's actions. They understand that to be the case. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The Lord turns the heart of the king wherever he wishes. Proverbs 21, 1. This is the truth revealed here. Now, 29. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Are they truthful? Yes, they are truthful. They tell their own father exactly what happened. This is evidence for us, and Joseph will see this once they return, but it's evidence for us so far that they are honest. They're not deceivers. They have learned to be honest men. They're not deceivers anymore. Now, should honesty characterize the believer. No. See, that's what Joseph is trying to figure out. Are they believers? Do they believe the gospel now? Are they converted? Have they quit being deceitful men? Have they quit being liars, those who love and practice lying? Are they now honest men, genuine men, sincere men, seeking to please God, fear God, and live in a godly way? Are they now honest? That is a just way to test a true convert to see if he's honest. That may be new to our ears, but it's not new to Scripture. It's in Scripture that Satan is the father of lies. John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you desire to do the deeds of your father. He was a 
murderer and a liar from the beginning. And whenever he speaks, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Christ was known to speak the truth. Because when he was tested with the question, the questioner prefaced his question by saying, we know that you teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one. Matthew twenty two sixteen. You teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the scenario presented to him, he said it as it is. He truthfully spoke without deceit, without lies. Which should also not surprise us. Because if God has worked in a man, whatever he used to be, he's not that anymore. Right. Why? Because God has worked in him, and God is the God of truth. Isaiah 65, 16. Christ is the truth. John 14, 6. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Uh, John 15, 26. He's the spirit of truth. And when we hear the gospel, the gospel is called the message of truth. Ephesians 1.13. It's called the word of truth. Colossians 1, verse 5. And 1 Peter 2.1, we're supposed to put off, put away all deceit or all guile. We're supposed to put it away as believers who are being sanctified by the grace of Christ. So this should be a characteristic of believers. They tell the truth. They are honest men. 35 to 38. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that behold, every man's bundle was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. We've already spoken of that that they all are brought under this big cloud of depression and dismay, knowing that they are going to be held accountable if their life is going to survive, held accountable before Joseph, the ruler of Egypt. The Lord of the land, as they call him here. 36, Jacob's response. 36 to 38, we have Jacob's response. And their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. They, practically speaking, believe Joseph is no more, that he's dead. Right. Like he says in verse 38, his brother is dead. They believe Joseph is dead. In Simeon's case, they know he's in prison, but eventually it's misery and death that's awaiting Simeon. So he's saying this more in anticipation than in reality. Because they don't know that Simeon's actually dead. He's in the prison. That's all they know up to that point. And they just return from their journey. And they don't know that the Lord of the land, Joseph, is a liar. They won't know that until they return and see that Simeon is still alive. Correct? So he's speaking it more in anticipation. Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. And who is Benjamin? The son of his old age. The son of his old age. And the son, the youngest son of his 
beloved wife, Rachel, who's now dead. He wouldn't want Benjamin to be easily jeopardized on the journey or even in Egypt. He says, all these things are against me. Jacob, he has been living a life that's been unpleasant, a very, very unpleasant life. He actually has said this. He literally uses the word evil in Genesis 47, 9. In Genesis 47, 9, he says, So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant, or few and evil, have been the years of my life. Nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. Jacob, he lives, uh, by this point he's 130 years old. He lives 17 years in the land of Egypt and dies at age 147. But 130 is short of Abraham's 175 when he died and short of Isaac's 180 years. That's why he calls it few, partially why he calls it few, because he says, they have not attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. If he means his immediate fathers, meaning his father and grandfather, that would be them. But if he means even his more distant ancestors, before the flood, they lived to be seven, eight, nine hundred years old. They haven't, he hasn't, and uh, his own father and grandfather, Abraham and Isaac, haven't lived to be that long. But he also calls his days on the earth unpleasant or evil. Why? Didn't he have 20 years of turmoil in a foreign land? That is where his relatives were when he met Rachel, Leah, and the others. When he met all of his relatives there, he had to live there for 20 years in toil because he worked seven years for one wife, seven years for another wife, six years for all of the cattle and the flocks. 20 years. And Laban mistreated him, exploited him. He, he was like a cruel taskmaster of a master. He was that, or a modern dictator. That's the way he was. That's the way Laban was against Jacob. So he's not exaggerating when he says he spent a lot of his life in this kind of distress. He's telling the truth to Pharaoh. Also, when 24 years ago he lost Joseph, wasn't he in distress? Wouldn't you be in distress? He was in distress for losing his son, his oldest son of his favorite wife, Rachel. He lost him. Furthermore, he lost his favorite wife in Genesis 35. He lost her yeah, when, when she was giving birth to Benjamin, he lost her. So he had these distresses during his life. Genesis 34, he had the threat that his whole clan would yeah. be attacked and invaded by the surrounding tribes because Simeon and Levi attacked the Shechemites and destroyed all the men of the city. He had to live in fear that eventually, perhaps one or more of the surrounding Canaanites 
would come and retaliate against him. These are just a few of the major conflicts or major hostilities and distresses Jacob suffered. Is he... He's not complaining against God. What he's doing is he's explaining his circumstances and he's doing what he can to prevent worse disasters from happening, which is normal, natural, and we should all do that. As far as we can, prevent physical disasters from happening to us. Be careful to love your neighbor as yourself. If we love ourselves, we will love our neighbor. If we don't have the capacity to love ourselves, we won't love our neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what he's desiring. Verse, uh, by the way, when what he's desiring, we should desire. When what he experiences, we should experience. We will experience. And indeed, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 Acts 14.22 through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The Christian life is, a, is not a life of ease, comfort, and pleasure. It is not that way. It is a life of conflict, of suffering, hardships, unexpected disasters happening to us, and some of it is persecution. We stand for the truth, we speak the truth, we live the truth, and all of our adversaries will come and pounce on us because of that. We're going to be like a sheep with wolves and foxes ready to pounce. That's the way we will be to them. They will persecute us that way, all because we're trying to be faithful to God. They will do so. Whether persecution or general hardships, they will happen. Be between our conversion until our coffin. Between our conversion and the coming of Christ. This is the way of the Christian life. Not a life of ease. The false gospels promise peace, yeah. progeny, and a pot belly. That's what the false gospels promise. But that's not what the true gospel promises. God will take care of us. He'll provide for our needs. But He's not going to pamper us and keep us in our pampered state. He's going to test us. He's going to try us like he tried Jacob. Verse 37. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm sh should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in Sorrow. Reuben's proposal here seems excessive, and perhaps it was excessive. He meant it to say how serious he was. Perhaps he was using hyperbole. It seems hard to imagine that Reuben would want two of his sons to be put to death, or that even Jacob would want to put his grandsons to death. What grandfather wants to put grandsons to death? No. They usually want to coddle and pamper their grandsons. That's usually what happens. So Ru Jacob would not be that way. So probably Reuben is merely expressing how serious he is about the matter. That he really wants to carry out 
this task of taking Benjamin and ensuring that both Benjamin and Simeon all come back as well as grain comes back and we all survive. As the oldest, failing to do so with Joseph, he's attempting to rectify it here with Simeon and Benjamin. That's what Reuben is doing. So that desire is a good desire. Jacob, however, refuses. At least right now he does. Later, in the next chapter, it's going to be so intense, the famine is so intense, that Jacob uh, is at his wit's end and he has to succumb and say, okay, if this is the way it has to be, it has to be, I'm going to take a chance. Take Benjamin and go with you. But not right now. Right now, he's concerned, knowing or believing that Joseph is dead, he doesn't want Benjamin to also be dead, which could also happen on the journey. Like we said, there are robbers, there are raiders, bandits on the road, on the highways, looking to see merchants who are unprepared or few in number or who don't have weapons, cannot withhold the attack or withstand the attack of these enemies. That might happen. It could easily happen. And if that happens, he loses Benjamin. He might lose all of his sons. And all of this sorrow will bring him to the grave and the world to come, not in peace, not in a quiet, calm spirit, but with an anxious, grieving spirit, dying and going to the afterlife. He doesn't want his life to end that way. Who wants life to end that way? Nobody. Nobody in their right mind thinks about ending life that way. They want to die in peace with a calm, peaceful attitude, spirit, a calm heart. So, to prevent the disaster, temporarily he says no. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.